Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. For more information about our church, visit EdenWorshipCenter.co. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Join us now as we study through the gospel of Mark, the first of the New Testament gospels to be written. Our prayer is that as you follow along in your Bible, the gospel will come alive in your heart and you will see Jesus more clearly. Well, as part of ministering to our kids week after week, uh, Justin and Aaron have been serving in our youth ministry actually for a really long time, like eight years, something like that. serving others and serving alongside of others. Uh, And in the last year, Justin has really sort of taken the helm in leading our youth, uh, in preaching to them week after week. And we've sort of switched some of the stuff, uh, the material that we've been going through with them. And I I want you to know, we don't say this enough, that if you send your kids to youth group week after week after week, in and out, they will hear the gospel. And Justin has been teaching uh, and preaching to them sort of a, a 20 to 30 minute window. Uh, there's a discussion time after, and every single week they hear the gospel. So I, I would just make that plea again, send your kids, get them involved in this ministry. So it's a privilege to have Justin sharing with us this morning. It, Justin, is this the first time you preached on a Sunday morning here? No? He's done it before. It, it didn't go well. It went terrible. That's why we're doing it again. <laughs> That's, no. Uh, we're, we're excited for God's growth in this guy's life. So let's just pray for him and bless him, then turn him loose. Lord, we thank you for our brother Justin. God, thank you that your word is alive and active inside of him. Thank you for his faithfulness in serving our kids. We pray now, God, that your spirit uh, would speak through him, speak through your word. We pray, God, open our hearts to see Jesus. Let us see the risen Savior as well. Let the gospel come alive in our hearts and let your word bear good fruit in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, are we on? Awesome. So before, before I get started, um, let's see, is she in here yet? She's not. Well, I'm going to say it anyways. I just wanted to publicly thank my wife for the grace that she's given me this past week and uh, given me way more time than I expected I would need to prepare for this. Uh, so I just wanted to thank her for that. She can listen to this, I guess, later. So. Uh, so, a lot of you are probably wondering, have some big questions on your mind. You know, questions like, what kind of preacher is Justin? Is he going to be boring? Maybe, let's find out. Is he going to sing during this message at all? I haven't planned on it, but we'll see. <laughs> so, let's break the tension a bit here, okay? I'm nervous. You guys are maybe a little nervous hearing what I'm going to say, and so I've got a joke for you guys, okay? This is, this is going to be good. The question is, what do you get when you cross a joke with a rhetorical question? All right, let's start. So, a few groans, okay. That's all right, let's, let's break it up. Come on, it's fine. It's okay to laugh, I promise you. 
All right, so before we get started with our passage here, we're going to be reading in Mark 5, verses 21 through 43. So turn there. I believe we'll have it up on the screen when time comes. And if you're in need of a Bible, we have Bibles in the back. Go ahead and grab one of those. That's our gift to you if you don't have a good translation. Uh, I'll be reading out of the ESV translation, and that's what we have in the back there. So feel free to go grab one. So before we can get to this week's passage, though, we first need to have a little recap. Where have we come from before we can know where we're going? So in the past two weeks, we've been hearing about stories about Jesus meeting with people and and performing miracles. So two weeks ago, we heard a message about how after preaching on on the Sea of Galilee to a great large group of people, Jesus crossed and his disciples crossed over in a boat and went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. While they were traveling, Jesus was sleeping underneath or wherever it was in the boat, and a great storm arose, the kind of storm that threatened to turn over the boat, cause everyone to drown. Jesus spoke to the storm. The storm subsided. And then last week, we heard about a demon-possessed man who was possessed by a multitude of demons and was no longer in his right mind. He had no control over himself. Jesus spoke, and the demons listened and went out of the man into a group, a herd of swine. And so immediately after that, they got back in the boat to cross over to the other side. And that's where we're at right now in Mark 5, 21 through 43. So if you'd stand with me, we're going to pray this, or we're going to read this, sorry, and then we'll pray. Mark 5, verses 21 through 43. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And, she, and he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. And she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And the disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, they came from the ruler's house, some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. 
They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. What a privilege it is that we can stand in reverence of your spoken word. God, without fear of persecution, God, that we can, we can come to you as your sons and daughters, God, and we can hear you speak directly to us. God, I ask that during this message, God, that there's a thousand things that could go wrong, and most of them have run through my head. God, but I ask that none of it would be about me. God, none of it would be about us. God, but this whole message would be pointing to you and your glory. God, I ask that you would speak through me the meditations that you have put on me in this past week or two. God, that I would have clarity of mind to speak it, and to speak it in a way that brings honor to you and glorifies you and is not a distraction. Father, I ask that you would meet with us. God, that you would move in your holiness and in your power through this place. God, that you would speak into the hearts of the people who are here. Father, I ask that you would work salvation this morning. Draw us all nearer to you. Pray this in your name. Amen. All right, you can be seated. So I just want to give you a little roadmap of this message, just in case you find yourself awoken suddenly to find that you've been sleeping, so you know kind of where we're at. Sound good? Okay. So first, I'm going to paint a picture. I'm just going to go through and summarize what's happened so that we have the facts. Then I'm going to dig in a bit and unpack the implications of what happened, and then we'll wrap everything up into something for you to gnaw on and digest in the coming week. Sound good? All right, let's do it then. The good news is I'm 100% confident that I'm going to be finished before supper time. So I have no doubt in my mind that we'll be done before then. So the first thing we notice in this passage is evidence that Jesus' popularity is continuing to grow among the Jews. Because as soon as he crossed over back to the Galilean side of the sea, a great crowd gathered around him. It's at this point we are introduced to a man named Jairus, that he was the leader of a synagogue. And as a leader, he would have overseen the affairs of the synagogue. He would have helped organize and even taught in the services. In fact, we aren't told this for sure, but the chances are really, really good that he was also a Pharisee. And we already know what we think about those guys, right? 
Mark didn't include that Jairus was the leader of a synagogue just as a side note or as a formal introduction, like how I would say, hi, I'm Justin Geigley, and I'm an IT guy. This isn't a formal introduction. There's a reason that this is included. So rather, this piece of information that Jairus is a leader sets the stage for how we are to interpret his actions. We are being informed that because Jairus is a leader in a synagogue, in a nation ruled by religion, he has some level of status in the community. He was respected, and he had means at his disposal that others would not have. It is through this viewpoint that we are, interp- we are to interpret what happens next. So look in verse 22 and 23. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. So what we are seeing here is not just the actions of a father desperate to see his daughter live. It's certainly not anything less than that, but it's more. What we are being made witness to is a man of influence and respect who has exhausted the means at his disposal. Whose efforts to save his daughter have all been in vain. And now we are seeing him throw off his dignity and falling at the feet of Jesus. So this demonstrates two things to us. One, he had a real need. And two, he was sincere in his belief that Jesus was able to heal his daughter. These are not the actions of a man who had other options. As a respected man in the community, there's no reason that he would throw off his dignity and fall at the feet of another person unless there was no other options. These are not the actions of a man who did not believe that Jesus was able to restore his daughter's health. His daughter was dying, and he was helpless to stop it. But Jairus had heard of the great teacher who was able to heal the sick, and so he found himself at the feet of the only one who could save his little daughter, with the belief that Jesus could heal her and the hope that he would. In verse 24, Jesus heard his plea and went with him. So it's at this point that we are presented with the story, then, of the woman dealing with a continual discharge of blood. She had exhausted her life-saving in the quest to be healed. She had suffered a lot of things under the care of her doctors, and instead of getting better, her affliction only grew worse. She was powerless, helpless to change her situation. She, too, had heard of Jesus and his ability to heal, so she devised a plan where she would secretly touch Jesus' clothes, and then she would be made whole. And that's exactly what happened. However, although her plan to be made healed and made whole went perfectly, her plan to remain a secrecy in secret did not. Jesus felt the power go out from him, so he stopped the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? Okay, so imagine for a little bit, you're in the middle of a huge crowd who's interested in you, who wants to get close to you, and then you turn around and you say, Who touched me? 
everyone has touched you? So I imagine the disciples were pretty confused when they responded, what do you mean? Don't you see the crowd literally all around you? They are thronging about you, trying to touch you. Most of these people have touched you by now in some way. But Jesus continued to look for the person who touched his clothes and was healed. So the woman knew that she was caught. Her plan to remain in secret was gone. Jesus knew she knew. So she came forward to confess what she had done, to which Jesus responded in verse 34. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Okay, so at this point, we switch back then to the story of Jairus, and we learn that his daughter has died. His advisors tell him, your daughter's dead. There's no reason for you to bother the teacher anymore. But Jesus overheard him and told Jairus, do not fear, only believe. So Jesus, Jairus, Peter, James, and John left the crowd and the other disciples behind. And when they arrived, they saw that the mourning process had already begun. The people were loudly crying, and then, and then Jesus said something strange. Did you catch it? I don't know. Maybe it was strange enough that you just sort of glossed over it. It was like, ah, oh, it's just Jesus being Jesus. No, he said something really strange. He asked them, these people who had recently lost a little girl, why are you crying? Don't you know she's not dead? She's just sleeping. I can't even imagine saying something like that to a group of fresh mourners. So there's a reason that Jesus said it, and we'll get to that in a little bit. The mourners responded to him by laughing at him. So Jesus put them all out of the room, then turned to the girl, took her hand, and said, get up. And she did. Revived and alive. Okay, so now that we've gone through the story, We've got a good idea of what the facts are. Let's dig in a little deeper and unpack what the text is saying. So let's start with the story of the woman healed from the discharge of blood. So this woman was in a helpless situation. She had no power. Despite all of her efforts, she had no way to be healed, to be made whole. So she came up with a plan to sneak up behind Jesus and secretly touch his clothes so that she could be healed. So let's be honest, just for a second. You thought that was just as weird as I did, right? Why didn't she act like Jairus and fall at the feet of Jesus and ask for her healing? Why did she, be, why did she decide she needed to be sneaky about it? So if we look past the surface, we can see a couple pretty good reasons of why she was afraid to act in a public way. But before we can do that, we have to talk about the elephant in the room a little bit. And I'll try to do it in the least uncomfortable way possible. All right? So when we read that this woman had a discharge of blood that lasted for 12 years, what we're talking about here is an issue 
that only a physically mature woman could have. In which, what is supposed to be a normal monthly part of her life is not in fact normal and is continuing on and has continued on for 12 years. Okay, we all on the same page here? Good. We didn't say any uncomfortable words. Awesome. Okay, so with that in mind, ladies, I have a question. How eager would you be to share details of your feminine issue by directly telling it to a man? And not only a man, but a man who is surrounded by a crowd. No, not at all. Right? Because it's a private thing. This is not something that you are eager to broadcast to the world. This is not something that you want other people to even know about for the most part. There's some crazies out there, but we're not going to go there. <laughs> Facebook, I tell you. So that's what this woman was facing. And I believe that's partially why she chose to act in secret. Her attempt at secrecy is starting to seem a little more reasonable, but there's actually something deeper that's going on here that would have been obvious to the people at the time, but is mostly lost on us as modern non-Jewish people. So in the laws that God handed down to Moses in Leviticus, we are told of this notion that people, animals, and even objects could be considered clean and unclean. This is where the common knowledge that Jews can't eat pork comes from. Pigs were unclean animals, so Jews were not allowed to eat. No bacon. No, it is very sad. So there's this idea that anything can be declared unclean, and for the Jews, eating or touching anything that is unclean made them also unclean. And there are many, many ways recorded that a person could become unclean, and one of those ways is shown in Leviticus 15, 25 through 27. So let's read there. Let's turn there and read it. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge, she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge, shall be to her as the bed of her impurity. And everything on which she sits shall be unclean, as in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity." And whoever touches these things shall be unclean and shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. You thought we weren't going to say that, didn't you? It's in the Bible. And what can I say? So this is an exact match to the woman in Mark, right? She had a discharge for 12 years. I think that counts as many days. She is perpetually unclean. Okay, so the question is, what's the deal with being unclean? I wear dirty shirts all the time. <laughs> and the wives say, yes. 
so does my husband, right? What's the deal? Why is this a problem? Leviticus 10.10, and I'll just read it to you quick, draws a comparison to the clean and unclean. It says, You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean. So this shows the parallel that clean is holy, and unclean is not holy, not set apart. It's common. So this means that anything that was unclean was then unfit to be in the presence of God. Because it is not holy. And so being clean or unclean, ultimately, although it was a ceremonial ritual, it was a spiritual issue. Because if you were declared unclean, you did not have access to God. To be unclean means no interaction with God. So beyond the issue of having an embarrassing and private illness, the woman acted secretly because anything and anyone she touched was also made unclean. This means that as she pushed at the crowd to get to Jesus, she was rendering every single one of them unclean. That's a no-no. In fact, they were supposed to declare themselves when they get to a public place, unclean, unclean. They were supposed to call out ahead of themselves so that the people in front of them would not accidentally be touched by her and be marked unclean so that they could have interaction with God. She was, according to the law she knew, denying all of these people entrance into God's presence. There's a whole lot of reason then for her to confess her actions with fear and trembling. However, though, we see something really, really unique in the world of purity and impurity. Instead of her uncleanness causing Jesus to be unclean, his purity and his holiness cleansed her. So, this sounds maybe a little bit abstract. Let's bring it re into reality for us. Imagine with me, if you will, your favorite food dish. Okay? It looks perfect. The server brings it out to you, and it is delicious. And then as they're walking away, they just say, there's only a few drops of saliva mixed in that. Enjoy. Aiden says, I don't care. <laughs> All right, so if you're not a teenager who's a boy, chances are good, no matter how infinitesimal of amount of saliva that is in this dish or how big the dish is to dilute it in, and all reason says, this isn't going to hurt you, you're never going to taste it, that dish is not clean, right? Okay, so if even a little bit of uncleanness touches something that is clean, we are very, very aware of this concept that the clean doesn't make the unclean clean. The unclean makes everything else impure. But we see here that Jesus, his power and his holiness, was not able, only able to supernaturally overcome her impurity, but then we see that Jesus took it a step further 
because she came to Jesus unclean and unwelcomed in God's presence. And she left as a welcomed daughter in the family of God. Okay, so I have to resist stealing my own thunder, so let's move on to Jairus. So let's take a step back and took a look at Jesus' response to the little girl's death versus the response of the people in mourning. So remember that strange moment where he said, in verse 39, And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. That sounds so ridiculous to me. I can't imagine telling a group of people in mourning that their little girl isn't actually dead. My reaction would be a whole lot different, I think, than the people in this story. Their response was to laugh at him. However, from a human perspective, laughing is actually the correct response. Because we are laughably outmatched against death. There's no, there's no shot that we have. There have been countless endeavors to beat death but spoiler alert, in case you didn't know, they've all failed. That's why we don't have thousand-year-old people anymore, right? So, for example, here's a really good one that I, I found when I was digging into some research. Around the ninth century, Chinese monks were experimenting with different concoctions and different recipes, and they discovered, quite on accident, gunpowder. So is the delicious irony of that. Has that dawned on you yet? They were searching for immortality, and instead they found the very means that would cause the sudden and immediate mortality of millions of people. Looking for the elixir of life, instead found a huge weapon. It failed spectacular. Our best efforts to beat death will always fail. We do not have the power to overcome death. We know that in our core, and so did the mourners at Jairus' house. Their response makes perfect sense to us. However, we must be careful not to assign our own limitations and feelings to God. We are really, really good at doing this, and I'll prove it to you. Okay, so our tendency to assign human traits, emotions, limitations, abilities, lack of abilities, to non-human life and objects is called, okay, stick with me, anthropomorphism. It's a very fun word. And it just simply means giving non-humans or objects human qualities. So if you don't believe me that we do this, Think about a dog person. <laughs> I'm one of them. I am a dog person through and through. How much do dog people treat dogs like humans? An awful lot, right? Oh, they, sm they love me. Probably not. I hate to break it to you. <laughs> like, I I'm in the same camp here, okay? This is disappointing. <laughs> But they probably don't love you. Cats, at least cats are very clear on that. Yeah. 
They do not love you, and there's no mistaking it. However, dogs, we, attend, we tend to attribute non-human qualities to them, or human qualities to them. Oh, they like that. Look, they love me so much. Right? You guys know what I'm talking about. In fact, you've seen it or you've heard it where people call them their fur babies. Have you heard that one? I'm sorry if you do that. I don't think less of you, but you are just a tiny bit insane. How about, okay, so maybe you're not a dog person. Maybe you've never heard this before. Men, have you ever called your car a she? Yeah, she does real good for me. She just keeps on trucking. Ever named your car? I have. Yeah, we're very familiar with this, this tendency of ours to assign human qualities to things that aren't human. We know what this is about. So we all do this in different ways. There's many ways. I'm not going to go into them all. But we must be careful not to do this to God. We can't put our own limitations and thoughts onto Jesus because although he was fully human, he was also fully God and was not limited in the same way that we were, that we are. You see, from Christ's perspective, Rather than being laughably outmatched against death like we are, death is laughably outmatched against him. So much so, in fact, that he viewed bringing back a person from life as no more difficult than just calling out to them to wake them up. That's power. That is outmatched. Okay, so where does this all leave us? It would be really, really easy for us to put ourselves into this story and say something to the effect of, if you just reach out and grab a hold of Jesus, your faith will save you and all will be well. In fact, I'm willing to bet that some of you have even heard a sermon like that. The problem with that viewpoint is that just like we have the tendency to assign our own limitations to God, we also have a tendency to put ourselves in the middle of every story and claim the focus for ourselves. This is in part fed by teaching that is too heavily focused on practical application, but largely, and come on, you know what I'm talking about, it's because the world revolves around me. Now, most of us would never say that. Some of us would. Most of us wouldn't. It's very, very easy, though, to see this in ourselves. Just think of the last time you got angry at someone. And think about why you were angry with them. My guess is that 99% of you, or more, the reason you got angry was because they did something in a way that wasn't the way you thought it should be done. Okay, so let's, let's think about a practical way. When someone cuts you off when you're driving, you're angry. Why? It's not because of concern for the other person. You're not concerned that maybe something is going wrong in their life, and that is why they are driving like a maniac. Maybe there's an emergency. 
No, that's not our first response, is it? And if you are, you're a saint. Our first response is, that person is stupid. They obviously don't know how to drive. And I really, really hope they get pulled over so they get what's coming to them. Right? How dare they cut you off? Because you are obviously more important than them. So it's the same mentality that causes us to read this story and come out with how we are the center of the story. When in reality, this story is about Jesus. This isn't a manual for how we should act when we are faced with illness or death, and it's not a commentary on how we must simply have enough faith to be saved. In fact, if we back up a bit and look at the stories of the past couple weeks with the calming of the storm and the casting out of the demons from the demon-possessed man, as well as the healing of the woman and the restoration of life that we looked at today, we can see a theme emerge. In each story, Jesus responded to a situation filled with fear and declared his complete control over each aspect of creation. In causing the storm to stop, Jesus demonstrated his dominion over nature, over the natural world. In causing the demons to leave the man, Jesus demonstrated his dominion over the spiritual world. In healing the woman and reviving the little girl, Jesus demonstrated his dominion over illness and death. In all areas, Jesus rules. He rules on high, and nothing is able to challenge him. Everything is laughably outmatched in comparison to Jesus. So what does this dominion mean for us as believers? As followers of Christ, we can turn to Ephesians 2 for our answer. So turn there with me, if you will. We're going to start with verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So as children of God, we have an old reality, and we just read about it. It no longer applies to us, but we must remember where we came from unless we forget the, present of our rea- the reality of our present. We were dead in our sins. We were children of wrath. We were dead, helpless to stop being dead. All that we could do was sin and nothing more. Not only that, but we were born into this dead, sinful state without any hope of being alive and free from sin. And since we were born into sin, from birth, we were enemies of God. And so his just wrath was pointed directly at us. 
So it is against this backdrop of our past reality that we then move on to our present reality in verses 4 through 7. And we get to read my favorite phrase of all time. So let's look in verse 4, reading through 7. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love in which, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Can you guess what my favorite phrase is? But God. Those two words make a phrase that is so short, but say so much. We were dead and helpless to change our state, but God, who is full of mercy, who because of his deep love chose to not give us the punishment of our sin that we earned, who made us alive and then adopted us into his family as sons and daughters, and who made us heirs to eternal life, spent with him. This is the best news we will ever hear and should cause our hearts to be filled with awestruck wonder and joy and thankfulness. But don't forget, this story still isn't about us. Although, praise God that we're included in it, right? In verse 7, we read that he did all of this so that he can put on display the infinite depth of his grace and kindness towards us. This display infinitely benefits us, but it is not for us. This display of infinite goodness will cause us to praise him for all of eternity as we will be made increasingly aware of the character of God. For the sake of God's own glory, he will glorify himself through benefiting us. Through saving that which can't be saved by any other means. So our new reality is that Jesus paid the price for our rebellion. He exercised his dominion over creation and conquered the power of death and Satan and by grace made us alive with him for the sake of his own name. Our unholiness came up against the holiness of Jesus and just like the unclean woman, instead of making him unclean, we were made clean. Set apart, holy in the eyes of God. And since we've seen that Jesus has complete control and authority over all of creation and has claimed us as his, as his sons and daughters, the promises to us that we can find in the Bible can be relied on. Why? Because he has the power to see them through. There's many, many great promises. I want to point out just one of them in Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. 
Okay, so first we have to recognize in the text, this is clearly a promise only to believers. This promise is for those who are called according to his purpose. This does not apply to anyone other than believers. But what a promise, right? We've heard this one before. This means that everything works out for good. All right, good. Nothing bad's ever going to happen. Okay, I hear some chuckles. That means you're getting that this is, this is a satire, right? Okay, good. I suspect you've all figured out now that not everything in life that happens to you is good. Unpleasant events happen all the time, so that interpretation can't possibly be right. Although that's the way we hear it all the time. So it can't possibly be right, and neither can the notion that things that look bad are somehow mysteriously good, actually. Because the sudden death of a child can't be defined as a good event. Having a career-ending injury cannot be defined as a good event. The list could go on and on, but it doesn't need to. We know that this is a fact. We know that, in fact, every day is not Friday. In fact, we are promised in the Bible that we are going to see hard times. This is a reality. So how do we reconcile the fact, then, that Christ is sovereign, that he is in complete control over all of the universe with this verse that says every single thing that happens to his followers is for their good? When we know from experience that not everything that happens is good. We experience so much bad. So our difficulty with this verse is in where we get the definition of good. If we get the definition from ourselves and what we define good as, then yeah, we have an obvious and unreconcilable difference and contradiction with the Word of God. That's not a good place to be in. And since we believe the Bible is inerrant and has nothing in it that is wrong, we know that when we get our definition of the word good from somewhere or from ourselves, it can't be right. So we have to get it from somewhere else. As providence would have it, it's in the next verse. Look in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So here we're told that the definition of good is being conformed to the image of Jesus. All things work out for the good of those who are called according to his purposes, and that good is being made more like Jesus. It is not anything else. It's not that my car died, so I'm getting a Ferrari. Right? This is insanity, yet people believe stuff like that. What a, what a shallow definition that is. How much more wonderful and satisfying of an interpretation is it that we're made more like Jesus? 
So let's wrap this up for what Jesus' sovereignty means for the believer. Just skip forward a couple verses in Romans 8 to verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If we are in the if we are in the corner of the sovereign ruler of the universe, the one who has demonstrated complete dominion over all of creation, who can possibly be against us? Some may try, but because of the promise of the Savior, the worst that can be done to us is that we're made more like Jesus. How much more should this cause our faith to grow knowing that in everything that happens, we are being sanctified as image bearers of God's Son. J.C. Ryle has this to say about believers, or say to believers about our passage in Mark. Of all the Christian graces, none is so frequently mentioned in the New Testament as faith, and none is so highly commended. No grace brings such glory to Christ. Hope brings an eager expectation of good things to come. Love brings a warm and willing heart. Faith brings an empty hand, receives everything, and can give nothing in return. No grace is so important to the Christian's own soul. By faith, we begin. By faith, we live. By faith, we stand. We walk by faith and not by sight. By faith, we overcome. By faith, we have peace. By faith, we enter into rest. No grace should be the subject of so much self-inquiry. We should often ask ourselves, do I really believe? Is my faith true, genuine, and the gift of God? May we never rest until we can give a satisfactory answer to those questions. Worship team, if you want to come up, I'll wrap this up real quick. So, what is this dominion that Jesus has? What does that mean for unbelievers? We've just got done talking about what it means for believers, but what about unbelievers? The reality is that some of you in this very room. The Bible has something to say to you as well in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So what does that mean? This means that if you've ever had a lustful thought, or have ever stolen anything, or have ever gotten drunk, or have ever cheated someone, or have done anything at all that goes against the laws of God, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You are currently like the unclean woman and are unfit for relationship with God. You're still living in the reality that for believers is our old reality. In Ephesians 1 through 3, you have been born into sin. Your sin is inescapable, but it is still inexcusable. You will be held responsible for your sins, past, present, and future. You have no power to 
change your state of deadness. The good news of the gospel, though, is that you are helpless, but not hopeless. The offer of salvation is extended to you. I read it in Romans 10, 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So the fact that you can hear my voice means that you are being made this offer. You're being offered to be made clean and holy in the sight of God. And it is extended directly to you. His sovereignty, his authority, and control that I've laid out in display in front of you means that there is no better place in the universe where you can place your trust. The reality is, though, that no amount of well-crafted wording and persuasive arguments can ever save you. So I just say this to you. Do not fear. Only believe in your heart and confess that Jesus is Lord, and be saved. So at this time, we're going to have communion. And this, this is a symbol for us as believers to show our relationship with, with Jesus. We are coming to his table as sons and daughters who have been adopted and so we are welcome into his presence to eat with him and commune with him. So by its very nature, this means that this excludes those who are not believers. So I invite you, if you are not a believer, take this time, reflect, call out on the name of Jesus and be saved. As believers, take this time to remember the old reality that Jesus has taken you from and the new reality that you are living in now in which you have eternal life ahead of you spent with Jesus, in which he is going to display to you the infinite depths of his grace and his kindness directly to you. Let this time be a time where thankfulness and gratitude wells up in your heart and you can't contain it as we take communion and we sing a song and worship to him. So this time we'll have you, as we, as we start the song, we'll have you come up just down the aisles. Over here we have wine. Over here we have grape juice. If one way leads you, your conscience leads you one way or the other, feel free to cross over and get to that side. So let's pray. Father, we thank you. And we thank you for this gospel, this good news. And we thank you that you've demonstrated your complete sovereignty over everything in our lives. God, the rest that that causes us to have in you can't be matched by anything else. God, I thank you that we can come to you as sons and daughters and we can, in gratitude and praise, we can lift up our concerns to you, God, and know that you are sovereign, that you are in control, and that every event that happens 
is for the sake of causing us to be made more like your son. God, what peace that causes in me. Knowing that the worst that can happen is really the best that could happen. In which I am made more like your son. God, I ask that you would take this message and that you would drive it so deep into our souls, God, that we would not be able to lose sight of you. God, that in all things we do, we would remember who you are and the sacrifice you've made for our benefit and for your glory.